This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Welcome to this week's Liverpool.com podcast. In yet another week where Liverpool Football Club have had a spellbindingly good, um, progressive, and just generally well thought out and well feeling um, week of football within the, the club this week of, of this mad season that is 2020 2021. Um, it's Dan Morgan. I'm joined by David Lynch, Matt Addison, and Joe Rabinovitz this week. And we're going to have a chat about Europe and we're going to have a chat about European football. Uh, a competition, obviously, that Liverpool uh, are yet to have the fate sealed for in terms of which competition they'll be in next season. But also the the reality now that Manchester City will play Chelsea in the Champions League final of this season. And Dave, I mean, it's the, the morning after, the day after the, the last semi-final was settled, if you like, sealed. I mean, it's a season that is obviously being sent to try us and is one in which the hits seem to just keep on coming. Now we're faced with this final. I mean, how do you feel about the the, the prospect of a City-Chelsea final? Yeah, I think I think the, the probably from a Liverpool supporter's perspective, the most disappointing element is maybe the presence of Chelsea because it shows that an imperfect side could have gone all the way to the to the final this year. I don't think they're by any means the, the finished article. Are they've had a manager in got a, a really nice bounce from that they look a they look a much better side than they were under Lampard and he's getting a lot more out of the players they signed over the summer um but they're not they're not perfect they're not they're not Manchester City's level I don't think even um so it's it's frustrating from that sense because you know you look at Liverpool and that's again you know they're an imperfect side this year and you just think what might have been you know they could have you know just played a little better at times yeah you know particularly thinking about the first leg against Real Madrid when they were shambolic um you know they could have just made that things more difficult for Real Madrid and gone a little bit further in this competition. I think with from the City perspective, you've got to just look at it and think that the amount of money they've been throwing at it for years, it was inevitable that they were going to get to a Champions League final eventually. I don't think there can be any disappointment around that. And I think this is probably going to be the first of many for them, um, You know, particularly with all the investment they put into it. So, yeah, it's it's a difficult one to take for Liverpool fans. I think any time there's a there's a Champions League final and, and English clubs are in it, and Liverpool aren't one of them, but there's a feeling inevitability around City being there. And I think yeah, it's just Chelsea will maybe be looking at and thinking that could that could have been us. I think I think Dave makes a good point, Joel, doesn't he? In the sense that this, in many ways, is no great surprise, and not just from a from a Man City should have been here a long time ago point of view, I think from a point of view of looking around Europe and saying, well, there aren't many squads outside of the Premier League that you can say on current form can basically challenge the final spot. And, you know, I think it's it's more prevalent looking at Barcelona and Real Madrid and, and their capitulation financially over recent seasons. But but even Paris Saint-Germain and Bayern Munich, you look at them on paper and, and you look at the, the depth Chelsea have got, for example, for a side who, you know, really struggled under Frank Lampard and haven't really made a dent on a title race for a few seasons now, you you look around Europe and, and you look at the rest of the squads and you think, well, there's no real surprise these two teams are battling it out in the final. Definitely feels like the lowest standard Champions League um, in quite some time, really. I mean, I, I would say as well as they've obviously done to reach the final, I don't think either, I include Man City, I don't think this is anywhere near the best incarnation of City, even under Guardiola, to be honest, as much as they've kind of pulled ahead of the pack in the league. I think a lot of their success this season, all the plaudits they're getting now, is partly down to they have played well, but how 
badly i think all the competitors have done really and that they've just kind of continued at a pace i think they're on 80 points now with four games to go they'll probably end up high 80s low 90s um but there have been better city sides than this I, I agree with dave i don't think chelsea are remarkable i still think they'll be kind of a force over the next few years definitely because a lot of the players are kind of starting to come good now players like havertz and um, i think will kind of continues to grow in seasons to come but it, yeah, you look around, having a look earlier, because the knockouts of the Champions League so far, and it's just there's been so so few kind of standout ties, really, both in terms of surprises, but also just general quality of the games. Um, I think Bayern are a massive, massive drop off since last year. Um, I think the Real Madrid one was fast the most frustrating because you could so easily see across the two legs as much as Liverpool were poor in Madrid. I don't think you could tell that they were a team who were there for the taking against. If Liverpool had taken any of the chances, really, that they made in the second leg, they ought to have really gone through. And that's kind of what transpired against Chelsea. Um, they obviously did well over the two legs, but it wasn't like a masterclass. I don't think from Tuchel. It just feels like we're at a point now where a lot of the sides who you, you kind of look at as the big names in terms of tradition and heritage are at this, I don't know whether it's just a one-off season, but they all feel like they're at a bit of a crossroads and it just happens that Chelsea and City happen to have had the most stability and also, especially this season with the way fixtures have gone, squad depth has been absolutely huge because they're the teams who can rotate, change six or seven players in the league games in between and still be just strong for it. Matt, is, is this up there with the, the the worst Champions League campaigns? I'm not crying this in as a Liverpool supporter, by the way, but just in terms of occasion and the lacking of, of its sense of such, it really it really does stand out. And it also stands out to me that I think I've seen someone mention this on Twitter last night, that there's not been any real sort of standout moments of magic, ties that have come back from a you know a deficit. You think about Leipzig and United, maybe. You think about the first leg of PSG and Bayern, but there's nothing really that's added to the sense of grandeur, the sense of razzmatazz that you come to to expect with the Champions League. I, I think it's it's obviously it's obviously hindered by the, the lack of supporters and the lack of, of a sense of occasion in that sense. But, but I think that was that was no more sort of highlighted than the semi-finals. You know, we're used to semi-finals as Liverpool supporters as them being such huge, massive occasions in which the crowd plays such a big part. I just watched both of them and felt like they were quite underwhelming. Yeah, I think you, you're spot on in that. I think it, it is the supporters as well. I think that's what's missing. That's what you think about, isn't it? With a typical Champions League night, obviously for, for Liverpool and, and Anfield, the role that the crowd has played, we've spoken about it so many times. But I think that's the same for, for other clubs. You think of, of Paris Saint-Germain, they have a, an excellent support on a, a Champions League night and, and things like that. And it just, it does add so much to it, doesn't it? I mean, I've said all along this season, I think number one, the, the sort of hindrance for Liverpool has been the injuries. And I think that is sort of 80, 90% of, of the problem. But there is also on these big occasions that the huge impact of, of the crowd. I think the Real Madrid tie is a, a classic example. If you know Anfield was full and it had fans and, and all of that sort of thing, it would have been very different. And you could say that the same for, for the first leg with the Bernabeu as well. If that had been full, it had been you know a, a normal occasion. I think we see very, very different matches. So, yeah, it's it's one of those things, isn't it? I think certainly for, for Manchester City, who've obviously now found themselves in a final, I wonder whether it's not a coincidence that they've suddenly and finally managed to get themselves into a final in a season where it does play into their hands in that 
there's no supporters, that sort of thing. I think that does suit the the style of football and, and the way that they play. So I think for, for me, the, the supporters is what is, is lacking from the Champions League. But look, for, for City or for Chelsea, whoever goes on and, and wins it, at the end of the day, they've won the Champions League. I don't think it's it's something that you can sort of look at and, and look down upon because you know Liverpool ended their Premier League hopes, uh, ended ended their Premier League drought rather, you know, with with no fans in the ground last season. So, yeah, it, it's one of those things. I think if if Manchester City do go on and win it for the first time, it will just be the first of many, and it's unfortunate that for them that it's coming in this particular season. I mean, Dave, Joel touched on just previously about. You know the, the 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 aspirations of Chelsea, whether they may may go on to do um, more with this being the start of Tuchel's reign. You apply the same caveat to City, even though Guardiola's been there now four or five years. You would say, you know, you would you would well back them to win another another European Cup in the next two seasons, for example, if they win in this one. I mean, wh- what does this do for City and Chelsea, but more so Liverpool next season, in the sense that. I'm, I'm not sure it it changes anything massively in terms of what Liverpool need to do next season. I wouldn't say that Liverpool somehow are more required to to reach a, a century of points, for example, by virtue of Chelsea or City winning the league. I mean, to play devil's advocate, could it be something that has a positive effect? Could it be that Chelsea almost peaked too soon under Tuchel by him winning a, a Champions League in the first few months. Could it be that you know City get the thing they want and they're, they're somehow unable to kick on? I mean, financially, we're not going to see the, the ramifications for a couple of years. Just in the short term, what does it bode for for the the both sides and for Liverpool next season? Do you think? I think I think with City, it probably doesn't make too much of a difference in the sense that you know that's a team full of winners anyway, isn't it? They've probably got strong belief. You know, the, you think back to when Liverpool won the Champions League. I think that that changed things massively for them going into that next Premier League season. In terms of obviously they, they'd got an incredible points tally the season before, but I think just in terms of pure belief from the off, uh, that winning run they went on at the start just completely put the the foot on City's throats, didn't they? And, and said this is this is our title this year. Um, I think you know. I think Liverpool needed that belief that they got from winning the Champions League. Whereas City, I, I don't expect it to make too much of a difference because they should already have that. They've, you know, and they've already got that incredible squad. It's not going to be used as a springboard to build to anything because there's, you know, all the tools are there to to keep winning things. So I, I don't expect too much of a difference on that front. For Chelsea, you know, were they to go on and win it, you could argue it would be a you know, they could use it similarly to the way that Liverpool did and, and use that as a springboard to go on and challenge the Premier League title. But I just think there were just quite a few flaws in that team that, that need to be ironed out before next season if they're going to really have a crack at the Premier League title. Because I think with this calendar sort of sorting itself out a little bit more going into next season, I think we're going to be back up into this high 90s in terms of a points tally to win the Premier League next season. I think Liverpool have shown they're capable of that if they get the players back and make just small tweaks and we know City will be up there again for Chelsea I think they've still got something to prove in terms of you know I look I look at the forward line specifically and I've got some doubts about that in terms of you know Timo Werner I think we've seen over a long enough period now that his inconsistency in front of goal could be a you know maybe in these knockout competitions he can get the odd goal but I think over a Premier League season does he give you enough in front of goal you know has he played well enough since he's signed for Chelsea I'm, I'm not so sure of that Havertz 
really improving of late, but but still got a lot more to give, and he's still a, a really young player. Can you consistently expect him to hit the levels of a Mo Salah or or Sadio Mane or Firmino in terms of in front of goal? So, I think uh, for Chelsea it's a difficult one. I think they've still got some issues to fix over the summer if this is going to be a springboard for them. So for Liverpool, I think. I think City is still really the benchmark that they're going to have to chase and, and, and trying to get back up into those high 90s in terms of uh, points mark in the Premier League. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Do you think this will inspire Liverpool anymore, Joel? I mean, we obviously hate the supporters and we obviously have our own innate sense of tribalism, which, you know, shouldn't be shouldn't be scoffed at. Everyone's the same at the end of the day. It's, it's the whole sort of makeup of football is built around it. But... You know, professionally, these players have got to be here and this manager's got to be here. And these are two trophies that Liverpool have won in the past two years, the European Cup and the Premier League, which are, are both going to be taken from them in, in quite difficult circumstances, you would imagine, given everything that's played out this season. Just from a a purely sort of fire burning professionally point of view, they've, they've got to go, want to go and put that right next season, surely. Definitely. I think the Champions League... Um, in general now, I mean, it's funny how that's progressed throughout Klopp's reign, obviously had the incredible 17-18 campaign, which was one of the most enjoyable, I thought, um, in terms of the actual run to the final itself. You think back to the amount of goals they were scoring, Porto away, Roma at home, and then obviously 18-19 when they go on and win it. And even though obviously last season was incredible from a domestic perspective, it, it did put a little bit of a dampener on the end of that season, I think not being involved in that sort of strange mini tournament in Lisbon because you feel like, or I certainly came away feeling like after the performance and the manner of the performance against Atletico Madrid, um, obviously horrible how it ended. It did feel like if they got past that, I think they would have had a real strong chance because the thing about last season as well is that Liverpool was so far ahead, so comfortable in the league. They could have almost put all their eggs in the Champions League basket as well. And it just felt like such a killer to kind of go out at that point in that manner. Um, and then obviously the way this season unraveled, it was such a damp squib in the end, Real Madrid, such an exciting tie when it got made. And again, just a, a huge sense of kind of lost opportunity. And I think something we've seen as well, when it kind of you often hear the argument that being in Europe or going deep into Europe tends to kind of have a, a negative impact on, on league form and be detrimental because volume of games and players being tired and stuff. But I actually think when you look back at Liverpool's kind of successful European campaigns, that's often carried into the league where kind of big results in the Champions League have just kind of provided that momentum, which they've again kind of carried into domestic form and vice versa. So I do think kind of going into next season, that needs to be something that they they really target. If they, if they end up in the Europa League, I mean, I'm sure we'll come to talk about it later on, they can't treat it as a kind of unnecessary um, unwanted hindrance to their season. I mean, they have to see it as an opportunity and try and go far and, and try and win it because it is it is a shame when you're only playing kind of one game a week um, going into kind of the final few weeks of the season. It's all about a scrap for top four. You want to have these big ties to look forward to. Um, and yeah, I think definitely the disappointment from this season, they need to kind of use that as a positive going forward. I mean, the thing to note, Matt, isn't it? It... it, it... Liverpool aren't miles away from either side. Liverpool beat Chelsea very comfortably in September. They, you know, went to Man City and played four forwards and for half an hour had them absolutely petrified. They've they've proved themselves as as, you know, viable, worthy winners over the last couple of years as it is. This isn't a 
you know, this isn't a Gary Neville talking about Man United saying they're miles off it. This isn't they need, you know, four signings to even compete for the title. This is a team who have got a body of evidence behind them which says if they get the breaks and if they fail to have the absolute nightmare um, scenario and circumstances which have surrounded them this season, then there's no reason why they can't be challenging for these honours next season. Yeah, it's very much minor tweaks, isn't it, come the summer? I've, I've seen sort of some talk in, in certain places of maybe Liverpool needing to make wholesale changes, lots of, of players coming out, lots of players coming in. It's It doesn't really feel like that to me. I think Liverpool need probably three players. I think they need a centre-back, a midfielder and a forward. And if they do that, there's no reason to think that, you know, with Henderson, Fabinho back in midfield, Van Dijk, Gomez, all of these players back in. I mean, just to take Van Dijk on his own, I mean, he's had a transformational impact on this Liverpool team before. We've got that as, as evidence. There's no reason to think that that, that wouldn't happen again. So for me, yeah, it's, it, it's a case of, of Liverpool will be up there. I'm slightly more sort of positive towards Chelsea than, than Davis. I think they've they've got so much, you know, quality and attack, strength in depth. I know this season that has sort of been an, an exaggerated point and, and they've needed that, particularly in, in forward areas, they've needed it. And that has really, really helped them at, at times this season. But I think that will continue to, to be the case next season. I think you know, Timo Werner has had a season to settle. Havertz has as well. We've started to see... I think that the sort of fruits of that, and I think they will will spend big in the summer as well. I think they'll probably get another forward in. I think they'll probably get another big central defender, and I think they're very much going to be up there and, and taking points off off teams as well. So I think for me, it's it's going to be a case of of Liverpool, City, and Chelsea all going for it. Manchester United, who knows what they do in the summer? They could be in there as well. I think what I would say at, at this point is that that next season it won't be a case of, of one team running away with it. I think we're going to have a, a genuine title race. I think we're going to have something you know, really, really exciting for, for the first time with more than, than two clubs in it for, for the first time in a long time, really. And I think you know, that there is kind of a part of me that thinks maybe if Liverpool are not in the Champions League, you sort of take that as, as a positive almost that they could prepare and, and go for the, the Premier League title. And that might give them a little bit of an edge over the other teams that maybe have a couple of other distractions. But I suppose that is very much taking it an, an optimistic sort of stance from a season, which is, is very much a disappointment. I think just on the Chelsea point, if I can just come in, um, I, I, you're right in terms of, I think Chelsea's, in terms of the, the depth they've got there, I, I agree with you, Matt. Um, the, the depth they've got is, is really impressive. But I think I think my main uh, sort of, why, the reason I'm, I've got slight scepticism about them, I think, is because, you know, you look across it, Werner, Havertz, Ziyech, uh, Abraham, Pulisic, they, they, they're all great options, but I think they're of a very similar sort of level across the board, really. And I think, you know, obviously Havertz and Werner, young players, could, could hit the next level. But I think the talk around them maybe, you know, moving on Abraham and, and bringing some money in and, and adding maybe, you know, Erling Haaland, I think would be an absolute game changer. I think I think they've got very good options across the board of a certain level, but if you just had one one real world-class player. And I mean, that could be Havertz or Werner really just kicking on to the next level under under Tuchel maybe. Um, but I think I think Chelsea will need that if they're, they're going to be up there with, with City and Liverpool maybe next season. I think that's key for them. As well on Chelsea, I think just something that's worth bearing in mind. I can't really recall that many, certainly in the Premier League, kind of top teams being really successful using free at the back for a really long period of time. I don't know whether that's something that Tuchel just come in and settled on and it's just kind of clicked straight away. But I remember when Conte did it for a while and it, it 
tends to you see managers do it and it has a kind of limited shelf life where it works and then over time opposition teams tend to kind of figure it out and I remember it happened quite quickly with Conte's Chelsea where that 3-4-3 which they won the league with I think was it 16-17 they played the same system repeatedly with kind of very few players it's, it's a really specific way of playing which has obviously worked very well since he's come in and replaced Lampard but I'll be interested to see kind of going forward whether that's something that he persists with long term whether there is sort of a, a tactical change of Chelsea and that that would be interesting to see what direction they go in um but I think I do have a sense that he's he's kind of come in found a stable system which is kind of just done well for a few months but isn't necessarily kind of going to be what Chelsea necessarily look like for the whole of next season and beyond um so yeah an interesting one to keep an eye on but I agree in terms of of depth of squad they're up there with with anyone in Europe at the moment I'd be interested to see what they do with the whole identity, to be honest, because they're such a transitional club. They're a club who have never laid foundations for a manager to come in and, and you know, have any kind of um, cultural say on what happens there. They've never allowed, even going back to Mourinho, they've never really allowed the manager to implement something that would be seen as something near to a five-year plan, for example. And, and I think the the interesting thing about them is they've they've got this, they've sort of brought the age range of the squad down quite a bit, and they've got rid of quite a few of the the bigger personalities, you would say, and and they're probably in a position to do that now. Whether, like I said before, whether we're seeing we are clearly seeing an initial um, influx of enthusiasm around the squad for Tuchel and his 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 tactics, his management, you know, his philosophies. I just wonder what happens when you know there's a couple of disagreements in there whether it goes back to being Chelsea of old, whereby, you know, you very much see that divide between dressing room and manager. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Virgil van Dijk, there's been quite a few comparisons to Ruben Diaz this week. Um, and I think it's interesting that, you know, City now have what looks to be more of a solidified unit, um, which has helped them reach this final, which is obviously something that, you know, is... Is conducive to getting a centre back like Diaz in, and and you know basically being a focal point for the back four and organiser, which they haven't had since Vincent Company. I mean, where do you stand with the comparisons? I wrote something for for Liverpool.com this week on whether you know the, the comparison was purely or more off the pitch than on it, in the sense that you get this totemic figure in who comes in and you know carries the burden, if you like, of being a a leading defender in a side that clearly needs some leadership and organisation. I think I think with the with the comparisons, I think a lot of that comes down to, doesn't it, that the fact that Van Dyke got so much positive press around what he did to this Liverpool side, and I think, you know, for for so long, we've been, people have been talking, haven't they, about how City have got this weakness at the back. You know, John Stones has, has gone through a bit of a renaissance this this season, but he was supposed to be the man who sorted that sorted that out. You know, even think back to when they were signing Mangala and players like that. You know, they've, they've had a lot of experiments happening in that centre half position and never quite replaced company or, or never they didn't for a long period never really seemed to be able to find a, a suitable partner for him of of that similar level. So I think I. I think I understand where the, the motivation for the comparisons come from, but I think, you know, it's very difficult, isn't it, to, to draw those comparisons when you think, you know, Van Dyke was coming into a defence that, that cost infinitely less to uh, to assemble. And I think, I, I don't think it's justified on that sense. And I, I also, I just think, 
as good as Diaz has been, I think a brilliant organizer, a real, and he's still young, can get even better, and he's he's had a really huge effect on on, on most players in that City defense. I just don't think he is of the level of Van Dijk in terms of his ability to do everything. You know, Van Dijk is, is, is calmness in possession, his ability to play those cross-field passes to either side, you know, and he's got the leadership. I think he's better in the air. I think he's he's quicker. I think he's, he, well, he's better than most centre-halves in the world, isn't he? At pretty much everything uh, in, involved in being, playing the position. So, um, yeah, I can I can see why people are saying it, but I don't, I don't think it's quite fair to say a player that's coming into a defence that's had around 500 million thrown at it over the last five seasons or so and, and comparing to, uh, you know, an admittedly very expensive defender who came into Liverpool's defence, but a less expensively assembled one and, and basically inspired a, an entire team to become Champions League and Premier League winners. I, I don't necessarily think there are particularly valid comparisons. They are very different players, Joel. I mean, I just had a look at them for a piece of road this week. Diaz loves to defend, um, gets above Van Dijk this season compared to Van Dijk last season in terms of Possession is just the tackles and interceptions. Uh, but as Dave references, Van Dijk's head and shoulders above in terms of his aerial ability, his passing, um, his pressures to the ball. So I think that, you know, you've got to, you've got to look at this like Dave says, that we're not really looking at this as ability. Um, we're not looking at what players are, are necessarily doing on the pitch. But it is clear that both of these sides are similar in the sense that they, they do need that organiser, they do need that that sort of defensive linchpin who can maybe be able to, to sort of share, shoulder the burden, if you like, of, of this sort of rests on me to organise this back line. And I think it's been it's been clear what, what Liverpool have missed without Van Dijk this season, but it's also been clear that, like Dave says, when when City were having back fours organised by the likes of, you know, um, John Stones, who's, who's done well this season, but he was sort of looked at as main centre half. Um, Otto Mendy, for example, the players like that, they, they've needed that player to come in, and I think that's where the comparisons are probably being drawn. Yeah, I mean, it's it's easy to forget just because they finished so far off Liverpool in the end last season that in the two seasons prior, City got what was it, 198 points in the previous two seasons. And most of that squad is still there now and you're adding Diaz to it. And I think he has been brilliant this season. You probably probably put him as City's player of the year. There's a couple of other candidates that kind of run him close. Obviously, Foden's been fantastic and Mares as well has really kind of re-emerged this season for them. Um, but I think you'd have to say kind of for his impacts, Diaz is. But he, he was joining a hugely expensively assembled squad, including a lot of kind of 50 million Centre backs and full backs on either side of him as well. Put Rodri yeah, in there as well. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but the, and obviously Van Dijk was coming into a Liverpool team which still had players like Clavan who were getting regular games. Lovren. Um, it's it's night and day really. I think the the really strange kind of thing around analysing City defenders in general. Um, I mean, you saw a different side to Diaz in uh, in the second leg against PSG where he was kind of throwing his body in front of the ball and having to do kind of quite a lot of out-and-out defending. But you watch the vast majority of their league games, they, they really are almost just like extra centre midfielders who spend most of the game camped on the edge of the final third. And they don't actually kind of end up coming under that much pressure, which isn't to kind of take away from how good he's been because we've all said there he's, he's done fantastically since he's come in. But you often watch them and there's they don't actually they don't have to deal with I think a lot of what Liverpool or when Van Dyke first came into the team where teams were really kind of 
getting high up in Liverpool's faces and causing them problems. City don't do that because they they control games by having the ball and spending most of it in and around the opposition penalty area. So I think players like Diaz are, are more difficult to kind of analyse from that perspective. I think just on the, the Van Dijk thing as well, what you get with him, which I think you couldn't really make an argument for with Diaz in the same way, is the difference Van Dijk makes to kind of the general build-up play for Liverpool, I think, is probably one of the kind of probably more understated in the general when you, you look at Sky Sports and BT and they talk about how much Liverpool have missed his his aerial ability and his leadership and his organisation. I think his his range of, of long passing, that ability to just put Salah or Trent one-on-one in, in a 70-yard pass in a split second like that has been is such a huge loss. It's why Liverpool have kind of struggled to move the ball up the pitch as quickly this season. I think Diaz is decent on the ball, but in terms of being able to play those kind of cross-field switches and, and stuff like that, they're, they're two very different kinds of players and obviously airily as well. Um, I don't really think there's a comparison to make, but yeah, I think he's only 23 as well, Diaz, so he's got kind of a good good five or six years ahead of him at the top. Still says a lot, Matt, doesn't it, that Van Dijk's sort of been referenced as the uh, as the best around. You know, I've seen a few City comments on social media about why about Liverpool being obsessed by bringing Van Dijk into it, but you know we're not the ones who made the comparison. At the end of the day, it's you know it's their it's seen as fair game that he is sort of the comparative point. I mean, it just emphasises even more how much Liverpool could do with him back. But at the same time, you know we're going to have to be patient and we're going to have to acknowledge that it's a season of rehabilitation fundamentally next season. And I think we've got to be mindful not to put too much pressure on Van Dijk next season that's probably where these Canate rumours are coming from if if Liverpool do out, go out and sign not one but two centre-backs you would imagine a lot of it would be so that they could maybe um, find a way to, to ease the burden on, on Virgil when he when he does return Yeah I'd be really really tempted to go for, for two to be honest I think Ozan Kabak could be one of them and, and possibly Canate the other one but I do think there's, there is there's an obvious need to, to get at least one just because you say, you know, Van Dijk, it's going to be a bit of a rehab period and it's the same for Joe Gomez as well. I mean, both of them have been out for, for a long time. I think out of the two of them, you'd expect that Van Dijk would be able to, to deal with a bit more of a, a physical load straight away. We've seen in the past sort of Joe Gomez coming back. It, it sometimes takes him a little while to get back up to form and, and full sharpness. I think certainly with with both of them, it's, it's going to be a case of, starting to, to ease them back in and, and hopefully that will come in in pre-season but not as you say giving them every single game and, and putting too much pressure on them but yeah to, to, I think the the need the, the absolute need is is to get at, at least one top level defender to come in I'm still not completely sold on on Kabak but if you could have Kabak alongside say Konate or, or someone else then I think that would would certainly help in terms of, of rotation and, and that sort of thing but in terms of like sort of the expectations in terms of, of that side of it from the pressure side of it. I don't think there's anything to worry about with, with Van Dijk and Gomez. It, it's purely a case of can they play two games every week immediately? Probably not. So therefore you need one extra to, to come in. I mean, in, in normal circumstances, you'd just say, well, you've got Joel Matip as well, but obviously we all know that you can't necessarily rely on him to, to play on, on those two games every single week. So it's certainly something for, for Liverpool to think about. I think there's no question they'll get one in the summer. It's just a, a case of whether they've got the money and, and the finances to go and get two. I'm sure, you know, if money was no object, they'd be going out and, and getting two in that position. It's just a case really of 
what other sort of areas do they need to strengthen and how much financial power is there to, to be spent this summer? The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Liverpool's fate is yet to be sealed this season, Joel. Um, we don't know what competition, if any, European-wise they'll be playing next season. Um, there's every chance it's the Europa League. You wrote something on that for the site today, which went out earlier on this morning. Um, we basically tried to look at it and we, what are the possible advantages and who the, the Europa League possibly advantages um, in terms of players and, and other things. I mean, just tell us what you wrote about and, and who you basically come up with. Sure. I mean, first thing, I did have to laugh to myself almost less than a year ago. We were writing about Liverpool winning the league earlier than yeah. any other team has in the history of English top flight football. And then what? 10, 11 months on, you're writing about why the Europa League might not be the worst thing in the world next season. <laughs> um, it's quite, quite the contrast. Um, but yeah, as I alluded to earlier, I think if, I mean, it's been changing quite a lot in terms of the, the ramifications of who, which places actually equate to which competition next season. But I think now, now the City have won the League Cup. You've also got Leicester and Chelsea playing the FA Cup. I think it looks pretty certain that fifth and sixth in the Premier League will get Europa League and then seventh will be the Europa Conference League. Um, so I think barring a kind of pretty miraculous turn of events in the last five games, i.e. probably taking 15 points from 15, um, which is is not impossible, but looks extremely unlikely, then Liverpool will finish somewhere between fifth and seventh. Hopefully not seventh, um, but fifth and sixth, so therefore Europa League. I think they have to kind of, yeah, look at... The, the plus sides, because there are some, um, which is what the piece was about. I think you can look at examples in recent years. Um, United and Arsenal obviously been in the Europa League a fair bit. And a lot of the youngsters are now kind of some of their best, most important players. Rashford, I think I'm right in saying, got his initial breakthrough in the Europa League kind of group stage. I think they played Michelin, funny enough. Um, Greenwood also, his kind of his opportunity came through that competition. The same with Saka at Arsenal and Smith Rowe as well. I think that's something that Liverpool next season, um, without it, it becomes quite difficult to see where someone like Harvey Elliott would get a look in beyond kind of the occasional Carabao Cup game in the early rounds, maybe the FA Cup as well. But other than that, you're looking at sort of three or four games and then you may be saying, well, it's we'd rather just send them back out on loan again. I think if Liverpool are in Europa League next season, I don't think Klopp will play a second string team entirely in all the games, but I think depending on the strength of the group and the opposition and the league games around it. I think you will see quite a nice mixture of youngsters. So Jones being another example has obviously played a lot more minutes than any of us would have expected this season due to injuries and things like that. But hopefully the injuries will ease next season, but he still will need game time to keep on developing and build on what has been kind of a good season for his own growth. Um, Europa League will provide that. Um, there's other players in the squad who, I mean, we've spoken on previous shows about what they're going to do this summer with regards to Cato and Oxlade-Chamberlain. I think in an ideal world, you would probably try and cash in on at least one of them, but that might prove quite difficult, obviously, with the COVID market. And they're both at kind of strange points in their career where they're probably just past the age where lots of clubs will want to take a chance on them um, and are going into the last two years of their deals. If those sort of players, Cato, Oxlade-Chamberlain, even Simicast, I'd throw in there, who's not had a lot of games at all this season, if they're still all around next season, they can't just sit around in training, 
make the occasional appearance off the bench and play the domestic cups. They're going to want to play actual meaningful matches and there will come a point when Liverpool need to draw on the squad players and if they haven't been playing football at all and they're coming in from the cold, that's a problem. So I think Europa League, in a sense, is a way to keep the fringe players and give youngsters chances um, in a way that I think Klopp might find it quite difficult to manage besides the squad Liverpool have. I think it would have a huge impact on the summer plans if all of a sudden they were just playing one game a week next season. Um, and just the last point in that piece that I mentioned, Klopp goes on all the time. He has throughout his whole time at Liverpool. The importance of rhythm and momentum, both of the team and individual players. And I think that's something that we can say, oh, one game a week is, is ideal because they get loads of time to prepare. But I think it works the other way with this Liverpool team more often than not, but they need to be playing every three or four days. I think it's why in their best seasons, 18, 19, 19, 20, they've really sort of kind of hit hit their best form in December when they've been playing twice a week uh, regularly because that's how players kind of get into a groove and stay in it. And I think, yeah, I think that there is definitely an argument that Europa, as much as in an ideal world, it wouldn't be in it. Um, is probably preferable to not having any European football at all. Dave, we know what a we know what a Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool looks like in the Premier League. We know what a Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool looks like in the Champions League. We we don't know what it looks like in the Europa League, for example. I mean, how do you think it looks? Do you think he would, like Joel says, be willing to to play uh, a lot more of the players who we might not expect? Or do you think it'd be a case that Liverpool would just try and ghost its way to a quarter-final? There are many variables at play, aren't there? I mean, we mentioned Van Dijk before, for example. You could say that it's a good way for him to sort of play one game a week until January, February, March. You don't know, but... Yeah, it's 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 an interesting one, right? Yeah, it's I, I completely agree with Joel that it's hugely preferable to, to missing out on any competition uh, European competition whatsoever. I think there's some fans have have maybe suggested that would be better for for Liverpool, you know, getting back and and trying to win the title next season. But I, but I disagree. Not only because of the rhythm point that Joel rightly points out, but also because you know I think if they want to keep a squad together that is of the level to be competing in the Champions League, hopefully the the season straight after. I think it would be, you know, they need to have the games there to to give to players, you know, not just the young lads like Elliot and Jones, who I think would would play a big part in the Europa League if if Liverpool were to get there. But it's, you know, you're looking at Canate, who who looks quite likely to sign. Um, it's a really good opportunity to sort of blood him into the squad. If you sign another forward to replace, say, um, Shakiri and Origi, you would maybe expect to leave if the right offer can can come in. Then you know it's much easier to sell it, isn't it? Than if you're not playing that extra game a week and saying, okay, yes, you initially start out as backup to Salah and Mane and Firmino, but you'll get your opportunities in the Europa League, play your way into the Premier League team, you know. And I think it's also worth mentioning that Liverpool would, if they qualify for that tournament, I would expect to start as huge favourites to win it, and could almost sort of stumble through to, like you say, the quarterfinals and find themselves there quite easily, having not played. The, the best 11 regularly and, and, and sort of giving opportunities to fringe players but pr- still probably winning winning a lot of games considering the quality of the opposition in that competition and I think that's an opportunity Liverpool haven't had in, in say the domestic cups under Klopp I think they've been quite unlucky to not win silverware there because they've had some really awful draws at times just unlucky in terms of drawing some of the bigger teams whereas even Manchester City with the, the quality and the squad depth they've got 
they've sort of had they've had FA Cup semi-finals handed to them some seasons. I'm not I'm not undo you know undermining the the, the achievements of recent seasons, but I do think you know if you can get a, a handy draw all the way to the semis, then that that really just set you up to win a tournament, doesn't it? And I think for Liverpool, they will get a, they will get a handy draw in the Europa League by by virtue of the fact that the teams in it aren't quite the level of the Champions League. So I think there's a real opportunity there to, to go and win it, to use the fringe players. And and yeah, I think it's it, it's a really good opportunity. So I think, you know, if you can't get Champions League, that would be definitely second best and, and hopefully can get in some form of European competition because I just think it's important on a, on a lot of different fronts. Just a quick point to add there. Sorry, Matt, before you, before you come in. Um, on the centre-back situation as well, I know you mentioned possibly signing two, but if we say that they're going to get kind of make Kabak's loan permanent, hopefully sign Kanate as well. There's three centre-backs, the three senior ones are all out injured and we're hoping you're going to have a good pre-season. But like Dan said, you don't know if they're going to be ready to be playing regular games from the start next season. And they might all be at kind of different stages. You might have Van Dyke come back and he looks fine and he's playing Premier League games straight away. Gomez might take a little bit longer. One of them, probably Matip, will end up picking up kind of a, a recurring knock or something like that. And if you've only got one game a week, it becomes really difficult. If you've got five centre-backs, potentially, if you've got Kabak and Kanate added to the mix as well, we don't know what's going to happen with Nat Phillips as well. It just it helps to have those extra games. You can suddenly you can build new partnerships if Gomez needs to kind of have a game off or if Klopp feels he's not quite ready to be playing kind of must-win Premier League games just yet, but he would benefit from playing Europa League group games in kind of a relatively low-pressure scenario. I mean, that's a really useful way that they can sort of build some kind of stability in a centre-back situation without having to put the senior guys straight back in in league games. And and suddenly you've got Kanate and Kabak wondering where they're going to get a chance. I think it becomes a lot easier to to manage that whole situation. Yeah, I mean, we don't know what the squad will look like, Matt, but we're pretty, you know, fair in assuming that, that players like Harvey Elliott will probably still um, be in need of game time come next season and will, and will be actually in and around the Liverpool squad. I mean, for the likes of him, Costas, Shamikas, you know, Joel's mentioned, th- th- these are all opportunities, aren't they? Especially in the first half of the season, which usually only comes from Carabao Cup games, which Liverpool are usually knocked out from quite early. Yeah, exactly. That I think it's it's the League Cup, isn't it? And you'd say that the six group games you could make heavy changes in in those matches and presumably get through to to the knockout stages with pretty you know pretty pretty comfortably. I would say if you had a, a team of of Simicast and, and Harvey Elliott, and you know, if say Shakiri or Origi was still at, at Liverpool, if they didn't get an acceptable offer this summer, they could could come in, and, and that's kind of what they've not had this season, isn't it? I think partly because of the centre-backs not having Van Dijk or, or Gomez there has meant that, that Simicast hasn't had that opportunity. But I think certainly for, for those players, they would be the, the biggest beneficiaries of this. They would pretty much be guaranteed you know, a, a game every other week or, or whatever the Europa League group stage fixtures are, how they're, they're spaced out. I think you're sort of you're having a conversation with those players and saying you're the Europa League players. We can, you know, give Andy Robertson the rest that he's desperately needed at, at times this season, but hasn't been able to get. And I think that's it. I think Liverpool have maybe slightly better squad depth than, than probably we think, just because, you know, they, they've got a lot of, of those players on the outside of, of the squad who haven't been able to be trusted to, to come in. But I think that could could certainly 
you know, sort of help them out next season. And who knows if, if Simakas came in and, and did brilliantly say for, for the Europa League group stages, if Andy Robertson was to pick up an injury or whatever it was in, in the new year, it, it could benefit Liverpool like that. So, yeah, it wouldn't be the, the worst thing in the world. And, and certainly I think that there'd probably be a, a fair few Liverpool players who've probably been a little bit frustrated this season and, and possibly even could be looking to the summer and thinking maybe do, do they move on just to, to get some minutes maybe that would, would kind of make their minds up for them, I think. I would just say as well, it's it's much more fun, not least for us, kind of working around it, not just playing Saturday and then Saturday the following week, having those midweek games, um, just especially given that we're hoping the supporters will be back in, in numbers next season. I think it's worth remembering that given all the incredible things Liverpool have done under Klopp, I'd still rank those Europa League games against United, Villarreal, Dortmund in the 15-16 season among the most enjoyable ones. I think it's a tournament that it's quite easy for us to kind of look down upon and scoff at because we've been so used to Liverpool being in the Champions League and at the top end of the league for so long. But I think it's one that once you're actually in it and there's kind of fans back in stadiums and you're, you're playing those games, um, you, you just kind of take it for what it is and enjoy it really I think that's kind of not something that we should dismiss there could be some some big teams in it as well I mean Juventus yeah. look like they might just sneak into the Champions League but they could be could be in it Borussia Dortmund I think they'll be in it you know obviously you'd want to avoid those sorts of teams in the group stages but you know, later on it, it could feel a bit more like a Champions League than maybe we've had in, in previous seasons as well all right, that's been this week's Liverpool.com podcast. Uh, huge thanks to Matt, to Dave and to Joel. Uh, we are undeniably happy that Manchester City and Chelsea are in the, uh, the Champions League final. So congratulations to them. Um, <laughs> congratulations from Liverpool.com and everyone here. Uh, wishes all the best and all that. Carry on. Uh, as for Liverpool, I think they're playing a game this weekend. I'm not sure. Um, who knows? Let's, uh, let's see how they get on and we'll be back next week. You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.